and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith. This week I'm with Michelin-starred chef and the brains behind Galway's food symposium, Food on the Edge, J.P. McMahon and his dog, Sam. His activist influence is vast and even in a pandemic, he's doing his bit with a new book, Lessons from Lockdown, an anthology of thought-provoking letters to an imaginary young chef from his huge network of brilliant chefs around the world. All that's in our news at the moment is COVID and Brexit. That's all really. And we forget that there's a whole host of other food stories operating um, at the moment. So I think it's really, for me, it's really important to highlight these. I asked JP where Food on the Edge started. I suppose it started 2014, the planning of it. And I had been to similar style conferences around the world and about exploring the the landscape and the local food movement and that. And I suppose I had the idea of why it wasn't happening in in Ireland. And um, I I suppose started to plan in 2014 of, of trying to invite some some top chefs to to go away to have a symposium based on the on the future of food and yeah it took about a year to to get them going and we, I mean we contacted hundreds of chefs we had 50 come and then the the first year was very successful and, and never since then chefs have uh, very much true from word of mouth from chefs talking to chefs about the experience they've had and also there's many other industry professionals talking at it as well so they it has been it has been a, a great experience and I suppose it has two purposes one is to introduce these people to Ireland and Irish food and the producers and the second one is for them to teach us something so they are leading industry professionals and they're bringing a lot of wealth of experience and knowledge and so we, we change the theme every year but uh, as you know chefs like to talk about whatever they talk about so sometimes they don't even stay on topic <laughs> so uh, I, I, I've accepted that Um and we have a, we have an artisan village uh, as part of the two day experience. It has about seventy producers um, from 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 mostly from the west, but from Ireland, from around Ireland as well. And then, so the symposium takes place Monday and Tuesday, and then on the Wednesday and Thursday, we bring the speakers on what we call a culinary excursion, and we take them and some of the media and some 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 of the sponsors to to last year, the two years ago, we went to Connemara and we visited some producers stayed in a hotel had some uh, oysters down by the beach and all these lovely things because of course gastronomy is and in many ways it's an elitist luxury experience for very very few people but what so many chefs are doing is trying to create a culinary signature that is unique to them that is all about their story and they can come from all over the world and many of them do they come from very small towns they're not necessarily you know rich and famous immediately these are young men and women who come into the the experience of chefing with something to say and ingredients is where they start many of them go on and we'll find out some about some of that through your full food moments many of them go on to become activists and a lot of what you do at Food on the Edge is activism, isn't it? You know, it's introducing people to local produce. But that says so much. What does it say to you? Yeah, no, definitely. It's about like particularly like, well, A, we're introducing the chef 
to to Irish ingredients and they're they're bringing their story with them. So, for example, I don't know, Alex Atala was here when you're talking about Brazil and the Amazon. So there's a kind of dialogue with with between the chef and the audience because they're talking about their story. And then the chefs who are, or the industry professionals that are listening are beginning to realize or if they haven't already is that, oh, I, I can tell a story as well with my ingredients from my place. And and that that kind of um, idea of activism is important because I do want people to leave the symposium with, oh, I want to do something. I want to change something. It's interesting you mentioned the kind of elite side of it, because for so much of us, it's it, for, for what we do with Food in the Edge, it's trying to un, unwrap that elitism and to try and bring food into whether it's food education or social gastronomy in terms of hospital food or prison food or all these things. And we've had people speak on that. And it is a balance between, of course, everybody likes to hear a three Michelin star chef talk about whatever they want to talk talk about but people also want to hear from uh, chefs that they might not know from around the world uh, talking about their experience and so for us it's always a balance between bringing in people who are recognized and then bringing in complete newcomers as well so that people can have a balanced experience and kind of walk away and say oh god that was really interesting and they can uh, they can relate to them as well you know because I had been to symposiums before where the celebrity chefs are in front of you you're sitting there and watching them they go on stage they talk they leave you never meet them and one of the things we said at Food in the Edge was that there, there is just one space there is no like isolated green room there is one space audience and chefs sit together they talk everyone mingles and then when we have the after party you can just go up and talk to to the chefs and say hi I'm whatever and I I enjoyed your talk and I'd like to work for you or whatever I'd like to go and all these things that I found that were lacking sometimes in the in the circuit of things on the when you when you go to different symposiums yeah, yeah. And I made a, a little mini documentary for the Delicious podcast some years ago with one of your guys, Killian Crowley, okay. uh, in Milan at the Young Chef Awards, um, which was an amazing experience of, of watching how these young kids, I mean, I think Killian was about 23 at that time. Yeah, maybe, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he was, his story was about Galway, hmm. you know, it was about an ear, your restaurant. It was about oysters it was about the very tiny details of his life in a in in a lovely place in Galway you know when you bring these chefs from all over the world you're bringing with them the stories of their local producers their land their terroir their you know everything that makes them them which is sustainable for local industry isn't it I mean you know we're talking at a time when fish is the biggest headline. Who would have thought? Absolutely. T- um, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you feel about local producers in Galway right now. Yeah, no, it's, for us, it's really important because I think, and again, I, I think it's, it's certainly the case in Ireland, maybe the case, I don't know if it's the case in the UK, but certainly I'd say Scotland and, and, and Wales being like peripheral members of what the British Isles or what it was and Ireland being had been a, a colony. I think that there's a lack of confidence or there, or there was in our ability to say our, our produce is really good. And, and one of the points about bringing these chefs over who recognise their produce is really good is that they start to go, 
oh god i really love these oysters or i really like this black pudding or i really like these ducks and for then the producer to become i suppose more confident going wow like that that's that's a, a seal of approval and for them to know i mean i can tell them until the cows come home that their oysters are the best in the world but i'm just down the road so they need they need external um gratification and i think that helps wherever you are you know and i think that like the irish food movement is a very young food movement and it needs uh people to i think to to bring people in as part of almost like as part of a benchmarking process and i think that nurturing the local producers from like farmers and cheesemakers and uh oyster producers and all the way down to the vegetable uh, vegetable farmers all of those need um i think nurturing and i think it's very very important because when you create food for me it's you're telling a story through um i suppose through your producers and this isn't necessarily just uh, in michelin star cooking we have two other restaurants and, and it's all the same producers so for me it's very important to to be able to talk about the 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 producers and where we get x and y because i think that the person that comes to eat then feels that they're part of some sort of narrative that is uh, that they're experiencing you know and i think experience is probably the key word yeah, absolutely. And let's talk now about the the book that you've produced in lockdown, and it's deliberately uh, available as a download to anyone who wants it. But it's kind of written to young chefs by chefs who have the platform uh, to talk about all of that, but also what else they really believe in to open the door on the world and the world's issues through their position in gastronomy. Your first food moment is from Abru Babera Demir. Tell, tell us why you chose, of all the hundreds of letters, why did you choose this one? Well, like, it was a kind of turning point when, when we were doing Food in the Edge, particularly the first and second year, and being a chef and inviting chefs, like, it, it began to expand a little, and we started to invite, like, I suppose for me, the only word to it is social gastronomy, and to try and invite chefs who are doing stuff outside the, the general, or the, the usual restaurant. And Abru has set up a restaurant on the Turkish Syrian border to feed migrants um refugees to to teach women how to how to cook and i think ebru's uh, letter for me was like it, i suppose for me it grounded me to a certain degree because when you're wrapped up in covid you, I suppose you think it's the most important thing in the world because your restaurant is closed and your businesses um, can't operate and all your staff are furloughed. But I suppose for me, reading Ibru's letter to realise that like COVID is another problem for her, but she already has lots of other problems pre-existing. And this, the, the migrant crisis, which is not going to change, it's, it's, it's ongoing. The, the more we, the more, I suppose the more that Europe grows outward, the more migrants are going to want to come into it. And so and it made me realise, God, that there are, there are some very, very important issues that are probably being sidelined because of the pandemic and that are not getting the news. And I, I think, as you mentioned with Brexit, I mean, the, all that's in our news at the moment is COVID and Brexit. That's all really. And we forget that there's a whole host of other food stories operating um, at the moment. So I think it's really, for me, it's really important the, um, the, to, to highlight these. And Ebru's he, he letter just for me just really, 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 really struck, struck home. Yeah, she talks of an ecosystem of joining the dots, doesn't she? she? It's the big picture. You know, can you imagine dealing with COVID when you're living in a refugee camp? 
I know, and that's something for me. Um, as as many and many of the letters touched upon have touched upon that. It was like I think it, it, it COVID became a lens to actually kind of almost blind us to many many other issues, and I think it is important as chefs that we continue to highlight all of the issues that are still existing with food. Like uh, whether it's um, the excessive production of carbon or too much uh, beef consumption or like all of these different things that we that that are still there, but they, they seem to have been pu- pushed aside because of the pandemic. So I think it is really important to to I think take a step back and and see that the world is actually continuing. It hasn't just stopped, even though restaurants are closed. And re- releasing it as an ebook means that it can go straight out. Was that the idea? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I'm sure you know yourself being involved in podcasts and, and, and the industry is that things take an awful long time sometimes, particularly if you've been commissioned. And I just finished uh, an Irish food cookbook with Fidon that took four years from writing and then post-production. And for me, it was like, I, I just wanted to get this out. And we said, like, if we can do this ebook and make it available as a download, then people can just get it immediately. And there isn't any issue with cost. There is any issue with where do I buy it and where, because we're all in lockdown so I think we've had over 2,000 downloads so far and we're going to do a second edition now uh, because many many of the chefs um, as as again as chefs are don't read emails sometimes and uh, if they go into spam it might as well not exist because they, they don't open their spams so we, we had a few uh, chefs contact us and said I, I, how come I wasn't included and I was like we sent you an email so anyway we're going to do a second edition and that one we're going to put on Google Books. And I think we're going to charge a nominal fee because unfortunately things on Google Books cannot be free um, because Google have to make money. So uh, so it'll be about five or ten euros, something something very minimal. And again, that it'll just we'll just put a second edition up there. But it's again, it, it has been a great experience because not only from I mean, uh, uh, due to lockdown, we can't travel. It was a nice experience collecting all of the emails from all over the world and as was one of the purposes of Food on the Edge was was that we have tried to bring in speakers from parts of the world like Africa or part, different parts of Asia that may not make it to these symposiums in Europe because people don't know them you know and Selassie a chef in, in Ghana who is a, a friend of mine she 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 had another wonderful um um, uh, letter as well, but it's just just uh, about even to be a, to experience Ghana through an email, and 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 go oh wow like just just to get a glimpse of something you know I, I think we're all kind of oversaturated with uh, with stuff because we can go on Netflix and or whatever and watch David Attenborough all over the world and we we forget that it's just the beauty of kind of realising God yeah there's other places in the world absolutely your second food moment Matt Orlando. Um, now, he talks about re-evaluation, taking stock of what's important. Our restaurants do not define us, he writes. Our actions define us. Why did you choose? Again, I asked you to choose four food moments in this vast, vast book of moments. And that must have been really hard. So thank you for that. Uh, why this one? 
Again, Matt, Matt has been someone who, who again, who, who Matt came to the first Food in the Edge and spoke about food waste and has developed, um, I suppose, along uh, along with Food in the Edge, he has he's developed his restaurant and and the he's be, he's been to all the Food in the Edges. But I, I think for me, that line that you said there, our restaurants do not define us. I think Matt's letter struck a chord with me because I think so many chef patrons or I suppose celebrity chefs become defined by their restaurant and then they become I suppose almost like a victim of their own brand and then they can't do anything else and I think Matt's uh, line really struck at home that I mean we're always other things I mean of course people look at us and we're chefs but you're also a husband or a father or a friend or you're you're many many things and I think that we, we need to remember that that just because we have a restaurant and it may be, it may be known that that's not the only thing we are. And we, and it, it is our actions that define us. And so whether these actions and, and Matt is very much concerned with, with food ecology, that that's what we need to be doing as opposed to, uh, as opposed to constantly just be, be opening up restaurants and, and trying to play the game uh, as, so to speak. Yeah, it's very much about mentoring the the next generation, isn't it? That's the purpose of it. I mean, my laptop is currently being propped up by um, today's special uh, 20 leading chefs uh, choose 100 emerging chefs. Uh, the Young Chef Awards that I talked about earlier, you know, the Dominique Crenn and Anna Roche and Paul Perret, they, they are the judges. There's a real sort of sense in in gastronomy to share and to nurture and to nourish the next generation. Absolutely. I, I think that that's something that that is probably like of the moment now, as opposed to what 20 years ago when things were much more bullish and almost kind of like hyper masculine and not sharing recipes. And you've got it. You've got to like prove yourself and work your way through it. Whereas for me now, like the, the, the restaurant or, or the, the, um, the kitchen should be a place of nurture, you know, and people come in and you need to nurture talent and you need to cr- give that space and create it. And for me, like a, not screaming at people and, and and making them feel good during the day are things that are very, very important. And I think that's a very different place to say where we were in the 1990s with uh, with uh, restaurants and, and, the, and the kind of culture, that the, that kind of hyper-masculine culture where you had very, very few uh, females, if any, uh, in, in, the, in the industry. And I think it's really important to try and continue to highlight that and say we need more, we always need more diversity in the kitchen, always. And whether yeah. that's gender, or ethnic or or based on nationality it's not good i think in any place to put one group into a place because it, it always just creates uh, creates issues so i think i think having that kind of transnational uh, kitchen is for me very very important yeah your third food moment is is very much about that theater of food Bo Beck uh, talks about the adrenaline rush of the service, all the excitement and the stuff as as customers we love. Um, but, you know, there's just as much adrenaline rush in the culture that you're talking about. You don't have to be bullied. You don't have to have Gordon Ramsay barking orders at the mouth of his cave anymore. You can uh, really celebrate what they're celebrating, can't you? 
Absolutely, and, and Bo's letter, it was almost like a love letter to, uh, to, to the kitchen, you know, and I think that you, you, it was only when you read it that you go, God, that's what we do every day. And you're like, wow, that, 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 that sounds good, because again, it's, it's about taking stock, and I think it was the way it was written as well. It was just really, really nice to go, yeah, that's what we do, it, and you sit down and you eat, and you, you become a team, and you build that team. And then also, as you said, for the, um, the customer to see that and to have an open kitchen and to witness all of the the theatre and the performance behind that food. I think for me that that was uh, that that was really important. And again, Bo's letter and it was another another chef called Jonathan Tam who's also based in Copenhagen. Um, created a recipe for the perfect dining experience and it was like the ingredients were like customers and chefs and it was it was kind of like a, a parody of a recipe but those two stuck out for me as, as kind of celebrations of of what we're missing at the moment you know and it, it is nice to read it and then just remember that front of house and the and the customers all of them will be back there and uh, be experienced that that that, that theatre of food and what is your feeling about that I mean at the moment the hospitality industry is just doesn't know what's around the corner can you gaze into your crystal ball and give us some of your ideas yeah i i'm i'm really hoping i'm hoping june i really hope that and i think it would be the same for 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 ireland the uk and most of most of europe it seems i think the uk may may get there a little quicker because of the vaccination program but then i'm also worried about variants and what if what if a new variant comes into the mix and it just gets thrown into the mix in july and then we're open again and then so it is hard to um to assess I mean what we're doing is we're doing online cooking classes at the moment and anything that just just to keep a little bit of activity it, it's not really about about money it's just about trying to keep things going slightly and uh, and we'll we, we'll reopen for takeaway in in two of the restaurants in March probably hopefully but it is are you doing the finish at home yeah we're doing that the last lockdown and this time we just we, we said we'd wait until the cases drop and just just and it gets a bit warmer and that but we, we were doing that in the the first lockdown so so hopefully we'll do we'll do that um we'll do that again and it's also for the staff i think for their for their mental health because we have 45 staff and um i maybe know where 10 of them are and the other 35 it's just like yeah you have to i have to go find them because a lot of um uh, front and back of house will have gone into other industries because they're less precarious you know and i know some of them may have gone to the likes of working intel or metronic or something like that where because they can't unfortunately hang around for a restaurant to reopen and live off the the pandemic payment because restaurants like everything else are full of people and real life and you know your fourth food moment is a perfect example of that and anna hoare is your is a very personal uh, piece tell us about that yeah and and again it's 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 almost similar to to ebrews but ebrews is on the the macro scale and Anna's is very much on the micro scale speaking about like a family illness and again it was one of those moments where you're going god like maybe covid isn't the worst thing in the world like maybe okay we're we're we're, we're we don't have a restaurant but we we have our health we can go outside and walk we are we have running water and electricity and and all these things and so Anna's Anna's was a very 
touching letter and 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 and, and tragic you know where where a family member w- will not recover you know and unfortunately uh, will will die and and again that was that it really almost made covid look like very little you know it was like god like it's like of course there are people dying from covid and it's not to take away from that but again a bit like the many many other things that continue in the food world like all of the other illnesses continue and it's almost like we have just stopped thinking about oh do you know people die of cancer do you know people like people people still die of cancer but unfortunately their deaths aren't the ones that get recorded every day now and i think that there's a there's been a certain blinding of that because we're so used to now it's almost like the six o'clock for me it reminds me of the angelus growing up it's like the six o'clock news comes on and then we get the debt notices and then this is how many people died. And I think that perhaps we could reframe that narrative in some way to, to, to make it a little more positive. And they're, they're still talking about it and possibly just talk about how many people they vaccinated. And I know some countries are doing this now, but it is hard to get beyond that fact when all people want to know about is how many people died today. And, and we forget that death is a part, death is a, is a part of life and so many people die every day. And, and we read, we need to acknowledge that, you know, and, um, um, and really, uh, and try to keep on going on. And I think that's, that's, that was the point of the book is like, we feel like we can't go on, but we have to go on and we just have to keep on going. And, uh, and it will be okay. You know, I, I think that, like we were probably better pitched than any other uh, any other civilization in time to deal with a pandemic and and we're still giving out so it's like it's it's it, it could be worse and i think that possibly if if we if, if we if we look back at, at different moments in time we'll realize that yeah look this wasn't this wasn't the worst one ever and i think anna's anna's very very personal letter for me uh, just 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 emphasized that yeah what about food on the edge 2021? So if we have something small in the pipeline, we're hoping to do a one day event. Again, it's very, very tenuous because we just don't know anything at the moment. So I, I'm holding off until June or July to announce. I mean, usually food on the edge takes about a year to organize and it costs about 300,000 to put on. And so we're thinking because most of two thirds of it comes from sponsorship and all of our sponsors will have been affected because they're all in the food industry. So we're going to say, like, well, what if we half the size of the event and do it for one day? 150 sounds a little bit more reasonable to, to, to try and gather. And also then maybe we, won't, we mightn't be able to bring as many international chefs, depending on the quarantine. It'll all, yeah, it'll all depend on vaccine and quarantine. And I suppose we can't have chefs flying in and waiting for 14 days in, uh, in, in quarantine, which they're going to start now. I think they've started in the UK, but I think they're going to start next week in Ireland. So yeah, that, that's going to be another, another issue. So we'll see what happens. And all there is, there is the, the online and the Zoom element. And so if we do something on Zoom or online, we'll try and make it as uh, as free as possible. Um, and then if we do an event, look, uh, so, so be it. But hopefully, fingers crossed that by October, we'll be able to uh, see a little bit more from the, from the, the, the wood from the trees. Thanks for listening. You can get your free copy of Lessons from Lockdown by subscribing to the newsletter at foodontheedge.ie. Next week, I'm off to Birmingham with Chef Brad Carter. To find out more about the Instagram sensation that inspired his book, Stuff. Stuff.